0: Well, if you have a copy of the Confession this morning, go ahead and turn to chapter number 21, chapter 21 of the Confession. And then also, you can, if you still have your Bibles open at Romans 14, you can stay there, although we'll be looking at some various passages this morning as we introduce this particular chapter entitled Of Christian Liberty and Liberty of Conscience. Of Christian Liberty and Liberty of Conscience. Now, the main concern... Of chapter 21 is stated in the very first sentence of the very first paragraph. The liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the rigor and curse of their law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world, Bondage to Satan, the dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the fear and sting of death, the victory of the grave and everlasting damnation, as also in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind. You notice I said one sentence. That's one continuous sentence that gives us the intent of really what this chapter is about. It explains to us that the very fundamental goal of the redemption that is found in Jesus Christ is alone uh, is the freedom, or the might, we might say the emancipation, the liberation from those who were held in bondage, those who were held captive those that were held captive not only by the prince and the power of this world, but held captive to the depravity of our own heart. In Galatians 3.13, it says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Galatians 1.4, Who, Christ, gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So this morning, we're going to primarily deal with this chapter by means of introduction. I think it's always appropriate for us to be able to not only get an overview of what this chapter is about, but also some of the verses and those first two verses, Galatians 3.13 and Galatians 1.14, are the first footnoted verses for that paragraph if you're following along in the confession. Again, not to try to make it so academic, and hopefully this does not lead you to boredom, but there is a historical background that is important to every chapter of this confession. Uh, the historical background matters. It matters when it was, when it was adopted, when it was founded, uh, what the reason, what the culture was like, what was happening. Of course, the Second London Baptist Confession was adopted in the late 17th century, uh, 1689. Western Europe, primarily those pastors who were uh, British pastors primarily, penned this statement of faith. This statement of faith primarily that you hold in your hands is the result of a number of British pastors and some other Western European pastors to declare and to state very clearly what we believe and why they believe it. Um, It is held in high regard. Uh, It is not inspired, as we learned on Wednesday night, we talked about the inspiration of Scripture. We don't hold the confession on the same level as the Holy Scriptures. We never have and we never will. But we considered a summary. Uh, It has been used very effectively even as people visit our church. Uh, People ask, what do you believe here? And you're able to hand them a copy of the confession and say, this summarizes what we believe. Um, I know the temptation is for us to say, we believe the Bible. Uh, But do you realize that just that statement alone, we believe the Bible, leads to all sorts of interpretations about what the Bible means to them. The Confession just simply summarizes what the Bible teaches. That's what our stance is. So these British pastors penned this to be helpful, and they were mindful of the historical factors in which understanding was necessary. Chapter 21, I would say, is probably a chapter, and the material that's in there is not covered very often in church pulpits. Now, maybe you grew up differently. Maybe you heard a lot about Christian liberty, and maybe you heard a lot about liberty of conscience. I'm not one of those so fortunate. Uh, This was not one of those things that I heard as a young man. It's not one of those things that I heard as a older man, and it's something that I still don't hear a lot about. I hear a lot about the word liberty, I hear a lot about the word freedom. I hear liberty in in reference to the United States of America, and I'm afraid what has happened is we as the church have taken the word liberty, and we've tried to equate it to what liberty means with regard to our country, and freedom with regard to our country, and the confession writers were very careful in saying, this is not what we're talking about. Now, again, you say, well, they are not; they were not American. They were British. It doesn't matter. What they were doing was in a pushback against a common thought process that had infiltrated society. So there are historical factors. At the end of the 1600s, this will give you some good background. Again, I hope this does not bring you too, uh, too dry because I think it's very important. There were many people at the end of the 1600s who believed that the church was the supreme human authority. Now, what that looked like was that the Roman Catholic Church, in particular, claimed the right to not only be the supreme authority, but they claimed the right to bind, to bind the conscience. In other words, they claimed, we have the right to declare unto you what your conscience is, what your conscience will be, and we'll be the ones that will tell you what your conscience is. So they had this idea that, okay, the church is the supreme authority, and because we're supreme in that, then we have the right to bind your conscience. Catholic leaders in that day, and to some extent, maybe even today, required conformity. They required conformity to the beliefs and practices, not beliefs and practices that were rooted and founded in Scripture, but practices that were rooted in their own ecclesiastical tradition. In other words, they were, not, they were binding the conscience of men, not with Scripture, but binding the conscience of men with tradition. Now, not all tradition is bad. But when the tradition or that which you're, number one, there's a problem, you and I don't have the right to bind the conscience of any other human being. This church doesn't have the right to bind your conscience. We don't have the right to tell you what your conscience should be. Now, it's very misunderstood because sometimes we've gotten the idea, well, that's our responsibility to bind the conscience. When they penned this chapter, they were doing the exact opposite. They were defining what liberty of conscience really is. They were defining what really is it to have Christian liberty. Again, now, if you view this through the lens of a country's freedoms or lack thereof or a country's liberty or lack thereof, you're already starting on the wrong foundation. Because the biblical definition of liberty is quite different than what the liberty that we use in our country, and we use that word way too often. Every single time something is seemingly to be against what we wanna do, we say something like this, you're violating my liberty and you're violating my freedom. Great example of that is COVID. Again, I know you don't want me to bring that up, but that's what everybody thought. That's not what they were doing in the sense of what the scriptures teach, but yet we like to lump everything in and we say liberty is liberty and freedom is freedom. The confession writers didn't think that at all. As a matter of fact, at the end of the 1600s, along with not only the Roman Catholic Church, the idea was actually in society that not only was the church some authority, but the state had supreme human authority. Now, the state having this significant amount of authority, it wielded great influence. So the church is being confronted with these ideas. We have the Roman Catholic Church who's saying, we have the right to bind the conscience. We have the state, the government, who's saying, we are the supreme human authority. Now, if you study history and you go back a little bit and you go into the 1500s and you study the life of King Henry VIII, King Henry VIII himself actually appointed himself the head of the Church of England. He said, I am the head of the Church of England. And by doing that, what was he saying? By naming myself the head of the Church of England, I now am your supreme human authority. So you have the Catholic Church and you have King Henry VIII saying the state has the right to dictate to you not only what you do, but we actually have the right to bind your conscience. Now, the emphasis of chapter 21 asserts that the Bible teaches that neither the church nor the state has supreme authority over the believer. Now, I've been in some churches. Again, you can can disagree with me on this. I'll beg to differ with you. But there will be people that will tell you that even the pastor of the local church has supreme authority over you. No, he doesn't. I don't have the right to bind your conscience. I don't have supreme authority over you. And yet, there are some that have been brought up in that tradition that says, listen, I am the authority. Or they'll say this, I am God's anointed, touch not the anointed. I wouldn't dare use that terminology about myself. I wouldn't dare say anointed. And dare, don't touch me. Like I'm some kind of, like something's going to have bad happen to you. And yet, the Christian's conscience, scripturally, is bound by scripture alone. Paragraph two of this chapter says, God alone is Lord of the conscience. Now, again, keep in perspective what's being spoken about here. Conscience. We'll talk a lot more about this as we study this. This conviction of God alone being the Lord of the conscience was one of the most fundamental assertions that came out of the Protestant Reformation. You may know it better as sola scriptura. The Bible alone, one of the five solas. It's a hallmark of reformed theology, sola scriptura. That five solas didn't just come out of nothing. It didn't just just invent itself. These things were put together to state very clearly what we believed and what we believe about not only God, but what we believe about the Scriptures, where we believe ultimate authority is. Scripture is authoritative because Scripture is without error. If you weren't here Wednesday night about the inspiration of Scripture, first of all, please come on Wednesday night. Secondly, if you didn't, I want you to listen to it because it is so vitally important today to understand why we believe the inspiration of Holy Scriptures. Because if you take out the inspiration of Scripture, you take out its authority. We believe that with everything we are. The inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. Authority. The church as a whole cannot claim that. The state can't claim that. Churches are wrong about things. States are wrong about things. But do you realize that those two things, the state or the church, does not affect your conscience? Whether they're right or wrong has no bearing on your conscience because they don't have the right to bind it. They don't have the right to tell you what to think. What to do from the stand of what my conscience, freedom and liberty that the confession writers that goes right along with scriptures we'll see this morning was not based upon how we think about freedom and, and liberty, but over the conscience. What does the Bible say? Now, the rejection of the idea that the church or state has the final authority. Now, this is where we're going over the next few weeks. The rejection of the idea that the church or the state has final authority does not mean that Christians are free to do whatever they want. See, we're extreme people. You say, I'm not an extremist. We're all extremists. You have an extreme position on something that someone else in this church does not have that same position on. I can guarantee it. Your position by others would be considered extreme. My position on some things might be considered extreme. But understand this, that just because the state and just because the church does not have supreme authority doesn't mean we can just say, oh good, we can all do whatever we want now, because nobody has authority over us. You couldn't be more wrong. Because the reality is here is what the definition of what true Christian liberty is. You see, Christian liberty is the freedom to think and act as we should think and act. That doesn't say anything about it. I can do whatever I want to do. No, Christian liberty is the freedom to think and act as we should think and act. Notice two parts to that: how we should think and how we should act. It's not binding your conscience. It's using the authority of Scripture and saying, "Here's what how we should think as believers. Here's how we should think, but not just think. Here's how we should act. That's true liberty. That's true freedom." Again, let's open that wound again. During COVID, what do we have freedom to do? To think rightly and act rightly. Not everybody did. Today is not about what position on what side you're on to that. Quite frankly, at this point, I don't care what position you had on that. But our freedom and our liberty was always the same. To act right and to think right. Period. Some churches, some individuals, some people, maybe us too, I don't know, failed to think right and act right. They used some authority to say, we don't have to. Show me where we have to, instead of how do I think right and how do I act right? You see, one of the main hallmarks of sola scriptura, I know we like to claim all these things. We would love to have it on the walls. I'm a, I'm a five solas guy. Because they all sound so cool. They have this really neat sound to them. Sola Scriptura. And we like to sound all holy and theological and high and mighty, but yet we have no desire or fruit in our life that says we think right and we act right. But we're five sola guys. That's not what it's about. If scripture alone is your true authority, then that means you should know how to act and think right. What is acting and thinking right? According to what the Bible says. Not according to what you think it says. Not what you want it to say. But what the inspired, infallible, and errant word of God says. Because this is God's word. So Christian liberty is the freedom to think and act as we should. The writers of the confession understood. See if this sounds like our nation. Okay, This is late 1600s. The writers of the confession understood that there was a real danger of people overreacting. I'm glad our church is not a church of overreactors. I'm glad when something comes, we all just remain steadfast and sure and we say, Here's what the Bible says. Every one of us overreacts to everything. Everything is the end of the world. You're taking every freedom, every liberty I have. What's this nation coming to? And yet you forget about who and what you are in Christ because you're thinking through the lens of how's this going to affect me? So they understood there's a danger of overreacting against, watch, listen to this, overreacting against the abuse of authority. Again, COVID proved, what authority do they have in my life? I don't have to do. All I would ask is did you act and think right about that situation? That's between you and God. That's the liberty of your conscience, right? But we have to keep in mind that there is also not only were they guarding against overreacting against the abuse of authority because overreacting to the abuse of authority turns liberty into a license. In other words, if I think that the, the authority is abusing its power, then I think the only right thing to do is to use my liberty as a license to do wrong. Liberty, don't miss this, liberty can be abused just as easily as authority can. See, we all talk about people shouldn't abuse their authority, but have you ever heard any messages about abusing your liberty? I can count on one hand how many messages in my life. You say, maybe maybe you don't listen to enough sermons, Pastor. Maybe you're right. I don't hear a lot about abusing your liberty. Paul talks a lot about in scriptures about don't use your liberty as a license to sin, to think wrong and to act wrong. Your liberty in Christ never is to be abused to accomplish what you want. Now, what's interesting, and again, I'm going to acknowledge this up front, and this is, this is not original thought. Somebody else pointed this out in one of the uh, commentaries I was looking at, And confession commentaries. It's interesting that in the confession, there is no mention made of Christian liberty being limited by his obligations to his fellow believers. In other words, one thing that this chapter 21 leaves out is partly what we just read in Romans 14, and also we're going to look at in a moment in 1 Corinthians 8. Now, for some reason, again, this confession of faith is not infallible. It's not inerrant. They left something out. Paul writes entire chapters about liberty. He wrote an entire chapter in Romans 14 about what we just read, about the freedoms and the liberty that we have, And but what should our actions and our thoughts be towards fellow believers? 1 Corinthians 8 is another example of that. We'll turn there in just a minute. So we don't really know why. Perhaps the historical setting in which the confession was written maybe is the reason why they kind of, maybe they glossed over that point. But it's significant, the fact that they left it out. Now, here's where we would say, and again, I have no problem saying this, chapter 21 of the Confession is not complete. Now, I would never, ever say that about the Word of God. I will never say the Holy Scriptures left something out. And if you hear that, you're hearing the beginning rumblings of a heretic. It's like I said again Wednesday, if a man stands up and says, I have a new revelation from God, get out as fast as you can, right? I am not ever going to say, the Bible should have said this. The Bible should have taken this out. The Bible should have put this in. But I will say that about the confession and I would not be alone in that assessment. This is not me standing up as a confession expert saying, you know what, they made a big error here but we're acknowledging from the beginning that they left something out. Because not only is our liberty this freedom, and it's not to be abused, but it also cannot be disconnected or disjointed from how we treat other believers. So then now, how can I abuse my liberty? Maybe my liberty is not against authorities like governments and churches, but maybe I'm abusing my liberty against fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It's an amazing thing how many times Paul talked about that and how few sermons we hear and how little the confession talks about it. Yet, it's there. So, whatever the difference is and why, we want to strive to accurately understand what does the Bible teach on the subject of Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. Now, let's look at 1 Corinthians 8. Again, today we're not doing a lot of exposition, but I do want you just to see as we introduce this chapter. This chapter, 1 Corinthians 8, is all about conscience. Now, the conscience that's being demonstrated here has something to do with that you and I are just not real familiar with. Meat being offered to idols. Today is not, this is not a full exposition, and I'm not going to go verse by verse and tell you what all this means. I want you to see the tone in which Paul wrote with, and I want you to see the concept that he talks about regarding the conscience. Okay? 1 Corinthians 8 now as touching things offered unto idols we know that we all have knowledge knowledge puffeth up but charity edifieth now I'm going to do something I don't normally do when I read scripture to you I'm just going to tell you in my bible this is for me stuff that I've indicated marked as I thought that's an important thought verse 1 knowledge puffeth up but charity edifieth You can underline that if you want or not. That's up to you. If any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. I got that whole verse underlined. If any man love God, the same is known of him. Most of that verse is underlined. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know... So now Paul writes here, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. In that verse, I just underlined, there is none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we by him. Now here's where we start really kind of stepping on our liberty toes that we are so accustomed to loving. How be it there is not in every man that knowledge? For some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Now you notice what Paul is saying here. Not everyone has that knowledge that he very clearly said in the beginning, that knowledge, it can puff us up. It can make us really abuse our liberty. What are we supposed to use? Love. You could look at that person and say, what in the world? The idol is nothing. And in our Christianese and our holy theological expertise, we look at them and say, What's the matter with you? Don't you know the idol is nothing? The problem is, that's not what Paul says. Paul begins to say, Listen, if that brother who still won't eat that meat because his conscience is telling him, who are you to bind his conscience about that? We are really, really good at binding people's conscience. Telling them what they should be doing and who they should be and how they should act and what's the matter with you? Listen, every preacher, every pastor, every elder who stands for a congregation of people knows when he looks out on a congregation, no matter what size it is, not everybody is at the same place. They're not. I don't care if that church has been together for 50 years. They're not all at the same place. There are things that I could say to you and you may look at me and say, well, I I, 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 I don't see that. It's not me that has the authority to bind your conscience in this matter. Notice he says, but meat, look at this, meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. One thing, I love how the Apostle Paul never apologized when he gets ready to step on your toes. Paul never says, now, folks, I'm really sorry I've got to say this. But take heed, be on guard, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. Don't abuse your liberty. Towards whom? Those who are weak. For if any man see thee, which has knowledge sit at meat in the idol's temple, Shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? He says, by your knowledge, you might embolden the man, I hope you're seeing this, to violate his own conscience. That weak believer, his conscience was preventing him from eating something that was offered to an idol, which is nothing. Nothing. But Paul is warning about the abuse of this, that it is not a good thing if you cause a person to violate their own conscience. And through thy knowledge, he keeps going back to knowledge. Remember, knowledge puffeth puffeth up. And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. Now, I I gotta tell you, I read that verse many times over my life, and I never realized that was a question. It's an amazing thing how sometimes we don't pay attention to details. And through thy knowledge, he's asking a question. Shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Again, Paul's not saying, you know what? You made a slight mistake here. You made a miscalculation. You missed the mark a little bit. No, he said what you've done is if you sin against the brethren with a weaker conscience and you wound their conscience, you sin against Christ. Pretty serious matter this morning, isn't it? So when we think it's not a big deal when I try to bind the conscience or I wound the conscience, what harm is there? They should just be smarter. They should have a greater knowledge of God. No, what should be guiding you is love, charity, not your knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. Wherefore, again, you want liberty? Here it is. The freedom to act and think right. Paul says it very clearly. Wherefore, if meat make my brother... If, if meat, wherefore, if meat make my brother too off offend, look, look what he says, if the meat that's nothing makes my brother offend, here's the proper use of your liberty. I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. You know what he just said? If that is going to offend my brother, then for the rest of my life on this world, I will never eat that meat if it's going to make my brother offend. And wound his conscience. Oh my goodness, the conviction of the Holy Spirit pierces your heart with that thought. Of how many times have we tried to bind the conscience, and how many times have each one of us in this room wounded the conscience of a weaker believer? Because I don't think there's anybody in this room that's innocent of that. We've all done it at some point where we have allowed knowledge to puff us up, and we've not been guided by love. And yet, it's not a message that you hear very often. Now again, why the confession writers left that part out, I can't give you an answer. What I'm thankful for is God's word didn't leave it out. If you look at that confession, just just briefly, and you look at all of the verses, whether you go to chapter one, you go to chapter, or paragraph 1, paragraph 2, paragraph 3. Guess what you don't see? You don't see 1 Corinthians 8 and you don't see Romans 14 as a footnoted passage. The confession writers omitted it. They either missed it or they just left it out. Now, here's what my personal opinion is. Again, it's not inspired scripture, so you can't call me a heretic for what the confession writers said. I think they were so driven by the societal occurrences of the day about the influence and the pressures of the Roman Catholic Church and the state authority, that chapter 21 was a direct response to that. Now again, the Baptist Confession of Faith was not a brand new document. It's taken mostly from the Westminster Confession of Faith with some variations that are very important and vitally why we as Baptists took those positions. But it's an omission. There's no question about it. So we see here, That there is a significant understanding that we need to be brought to in understanding what liberty of conscience is. Let me quickly just give us a summary of where we're going over the next few weeks. Chapter 21 has three paragraphs. So, next week, paragraph one answers the basic question What is Christian liberty? That one paragraph consists of two main thoughts or two main themes. First, it emphasizes what the Christian has been set free from, but it also teaches what the believer has been liberated unto. You see, we're not just free from something, we're free from something liberated and to be given over to something else. The second theme is that while believers in every period of redemptive history have been liberated by the work of Christ, New Testament or New Covenant believers, we do experience a larger measure of spiritual freedom than what the Old Testament, Old Covenant believers understood. Again, don't read too much into that until we actually get there. Paragraphs 2 and 3 then help us to understand what is the true nature or the true character of Christian liberty. And it gives us a couple warnings. We've already touched on them this morning. First of all, it warns us against common abuses of spiritual freedom and liberty. Paragraph 2 really gets into the nature of this and warns us about abuse. Paragraph 2, again, we've already mentioned this, God alone is the Lord of the conscience. It warns against the danger of requiring compliance to man-made rules and traditions as if those rules were the commandments of the living God. I didn't realize until I was much older, and and again, I'm hesitant to say this, and I grew up in a lot of environments, a lot of church environments, that my lack of compliance to certain man-made rules that I was actually violating the living God's commandments. And it's only once you start to understand and look back, I wasn't violating God's commandments, I was violating some man's commandments. I have sat under teaching that, maybe unintentional. that's what I like to think, I like to think it's unintentional, that someone was trying to bind my conscience. I didn't, I never heard anything about this really until mid-twenties. Um, so again, it's, it's warning against that. And then paragraph three warns against the deadly danger of erroneous thinking. Again, it's, it's wrong thinking. The Christian liberty gives you a license to practice any sin or to do anything that you think is right. Paul made very mention of that. Grace is not a license to sin. There's conclusions Uh, Again, i warned you against this. I'm going to warn it again. Um, New Calvinism, you better pay attention. It is saying that it's okay to use your grace that's in Christ to sin. I don't see that. Look into it. Don't study too deeply, but look into it. Some of your well-known pastors are endorsing this, and you need to be careful. There are people that are preaching the doctrines of grace that are not holding to the doctrines of grace that the Bible teaches. They're holding to the new doctrines of grace. With any generation, there's always new teaching that arises on the scene. If it's not the Roman Catholic Church trying to bind the consciences of men someone else is going to or someone's going to extreme go the other direction and say, listen, God just wants you to be happy. God just wants you to do whatever you seem seems right in your own eyes. Don't worry about it. You're still saved by grace. But the problem is that's not scriptural teaching. So a major theme of the New Testament is that of the freedom and liberty a believer enjoys. The Lord Jesus Christ himself in John 8, 36 said, if the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Galatians 5, 1, stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Notice this, again, goes right along with those two verses from Galatians we read, wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. But again, what does the Lord Jesus Christ set us free from? That's really what the question we'll ask next week. And the answer next week is the first paragraph. What have believers been set free from, and what have they been set free to do? So God willing, everything we do, of course, is Lord willing. If God allows us to gather again next week, we're going to start considering paragraph one. What is Christian liberty? Not only what does it look like, what are we free from, but what are we also called unto? And I hope it'll be a great encouragement to us.